Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 3 and extending to verse 6. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, as we now, having heard your word read in the presence of your people, sit in anticipation of its exploration and exposition, it hopes to hear from you through the power of the Holy Spirit the truth that you would have us know, the truth that you would have us to believe, the truth that you would have us to obey. Father, we humbly give our hearts now to you, and we ask that you would be mindful of our need, and in mercy, that you would portion out the grace that is necessary for every soul in this room, at the exact moment, in the exact juncture that we all find ourselves in. Only you, Father, have the wisdom to know what is needed. And so as we come to this word and as we explore it, we would ask that you would be the preacher. And that you would communicate in ways that only you can. The living and transformative word of God. Come now and meet us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure like a few of you, I was traveling this last week, going to visit family for Thanksgiving. I know a few of you were doing similarly. Glad you made it back in time for worship. When we're on those long travels in the car, there's always a debate in the Sheridan family. What will we do with those hours in the car? How do we keep the kids off the screens for those times in the car? How do we speak with one another and what do we converse about and how do we use that time wisely? And one of the things that we do is we, we always listen to a book on tape or on CD or through Audible or through some means like that. And so... I'm usually inflicting something on my kids that I want them to know and to learn, and this trip was no different than that. I introduced them to one of my favorite short stories. It's probably a short story that many of you in this room love. It's by the very well-known J.R.R. Tolkien. It's a little short story called Leaf by Niggle. 
Some of you have likely read that little short story. If you have not, I want to encourage you to read it. It's probably take you 35, 45 minutes, something like that. It's a wonderful story, and I think in many ways is probably how Tolkien himself felt most of the time writing, which was his, his craft, was his art. In this little story, Leaf by Niggle, the lead character, Niggle, is a painter by hobby. It's not his day job, but it's what he loves to do. It's really what he enjoys. And he has a grand vision on the canvas that he's working on of what this countryside should look like, this forest and these mountains and the, the, the far ground, but, but even more so this tree, this beautiful tree that he's envisioned and painted marvelously in his mind. And the exquisite leaves, which Niggle was very well known for leaves. He was very good at leaves. And he had it, but he could never quite get enough time to work on the painting, to get it to the place that he really wanted to get it at, to, to the perfect vision that would match what's in his mind to what's on campus because he was always being interrupted by his neighbor, Parrish, who always had something to invade his time, to take his time. And Nigel had a soft heart. He would constantly serve him, and then he'd never get back around to the project, the painting, the thing he really wanted to do, to be able to get it done. Some of us feel like life is a lot like Niggle's experience. We never quite get completed. The things which we want to do, the things which we feel called to do, even, even most specifically, maybe even most, in a most gifted fashion, to be able to give our hearts over to a work of art or a particular craft or in building the quality of relationships that that we've always longed to have. That was Niggle's experience in trying to paint this this beautiful painting, and specifically this this tree. I think as I was listening to that short story afresh, and I was actually just reminded of it as I was sitting there a moment ago, how it dovetails so closely to the Apostle Paul's heart here in Philippians chapter 1, when he says to you and me, that which the good work that the Lord is doing in us, he will bring to completion. There's so many loose ends, aren't there? Loose ends in your heart and in your life and in your story and in the places that you thought you'd be that you're not. It's so comforting to hear that the Lord will bring to completion the good work that he has started in us. That's one of the reasons for Paul's thankfulness in this prayer of thanksgiving here in Philippians chapter 1 is he's casting his, his eye to the church at Philippi. As he's thinking about them writing from prison, he's remembering, as we looked at last week, the stories of grace that have, that have trickled out even now into a stream, now flowing, as he says later, into the world. The story of the work of what God is doing in Philippi. He's raising up a church. Now in this verse, he's thinking along the lines 
of the present work that God is doing in the church at Philippi. You, you, he says, are partners with me in the gospel. You're you're partners with me in the gospel. As I look at you and I, I see who it is that you are, I remember what the Lord has done, but presently as I look at you, I see partners in the gospel. He's saying, there's a, there's a work that's begun in you. There's a, there's a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit in you. There's, an, there's a powerful work of salvation. The gospel of Jesus is at work in you. I see it because you're a partner with me in the gospel. Now that word partner is actually a quite familiar Greek word. It's one of the few Greek words that we all pretty much know in this room. It's the Greek word koinia. It's a word that's associated most often with the term fellowship. That's how we'll sometimes see it translated in the New Testament. Now, you'll you'll bear with the translators of the ESV translating it partnership. It's appropriate translation. In fact, I would argue it carries the freight of the word fellowship better for our time because when you think fellowship, you think potluck suppers and coffee and donuts, right? Catching up on sports news and weather, we're going to go have some fellowship together. Well, that's not what the New Testament has in view at all when we're talking about fellowship. Fellowship is a rich theological and spiritual reality. It literally means to hold in common. When you look at the early church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, you see this little cameo portrait of the early church and they're meeting together, gathering around the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, going back and forth from the temple, sharing meals together, selling goods and giving to those who are in need. And it says... In the context of that passage, they held all things in common. Now, don't do what many of us would do. Go geopolitical on me. Don't go communist. Don't go socialist on me. This is not a statement with regards to civil structure. It's with regards to the work of the gospel in the heart of a believing community. It's the fruit of those who have come to know Christ... And are now following in the call of Christ. The desire is not to think in terms of ownership. The desire is to think in terms of stewardship. That all of these things are the Lord's. Everything that he has given is not mine, it is his. And is to be used for his glory. Whether it's my time, whether it's my energy, and yes, whether it's my resources. It's all the Lord's. The term used for common in Acts 2, 42-47 to encompass that whole work is koinonia, is fellowship. Well, that's a little different than a potluck supper. It's, it's full-rounded. It's, it's, it's complete. It encompasses the whole, as it were, of the Christian experience, which is why I believe the translators faithfully use the term partnership to describe this quality of fellowship as Paul looks out on the church at Philippi because we read in the letter of Philippians that Paul identifies a number of ways in which the church at Philippi is fellowshipping or partnering with him. He tells us that they're praying for him, that they're regularly interceding on his behalf and for the work of the gospel. 
that time is spent as they engage with the throne of grace, mentioning the Apostle Paul's name, asking for his relief, asking for the effectiveness of his ministry, asking for the work of the gospel to be advanced in and through him, he sees that they have partnered with him in prayer. But he also says at the end of chapter 1 that I see that you've partnered with me in bearing witness for the gospel. They're not just saying, Paul, we're glad you're going to do the work. We're going to pray for you. They're actually joining in the work of spreading the gospel in their own vicinity. They have become, as it were, little Pauls. They've, they've duplicated. Discipleship has happened and though they don't have apostolic authority in the way the Apostle Paul does, they've been given mouths and they can give testimony for what it is that the Lord has done in them. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were bearing witness of the gospel, not just praying for him in the work of ministry. They too were sharing in the witness bearing of the gospel in the ministry of spreading it. But there's a third thing. The Apostle Paul says not only were they bearing witness of the gospel and praying in the gospel, but they were also suffering for the sake of the gospel. At the end of this chapter in verse 30, he says, I recognize that you are having the same conflicts that I am having. Now, Paul is in prison. As he writes this letter to the church at Philippi, he's in prison because he's been faithful in sharing the gospel. He's not in prison because he's done something wrong, because he's sinned. Or he fell short in some way. It's in righteousness and in faithfulness that's landed him in prison. And he says to them, I see that you're experiencing the same conflict that I'm experiencing in the sharing of the gospel. And so he sees they've partnered not just in prayer, not just in doing the work of ministry, but also in sharing in the suffering of following Christ. And then finally, at the end of the letter, you know what he says? He says, I know that you've partnered with me. In fact, before any church in Macedonia partnered with me, you did by giving me the financial resources I need in order to survive for the advance of the gospel. They have actually opened up their wallets. They've opened up their purses. And they have spent for the purposes of Christ's calling and his advance of the gospel in their time and in their world and in their context. Now, just note that. Prayer witness-bearing, suffering, and giving. That's partnership. That's fellowship in the gospel. This is a rich fellowship. This is a deep, costly, significant thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Now, that kind of partnership, that kind of fellowship, you might be saying to yourself, how does that come about? How do we get from, from this kind of attending church, being, being saved, to this kind of thoroughgoing yoking together in a brother and sisterhood that's in it through ups and through downs and where what's mine is yours and you can have it if you need it kind of spirit with regards to the call of the gospel. Where, where does that actually arise? How does that come? Does that come from, from natural affinity? I mean, many of us gathered with family this week as we were around a, a Thanksgiving table Maybe some of you had the experience. Some of us have this experience. When we get together with our families, we think to ourselves, now, I, I came from these people. How? Like, how did that, how did, how did that happen? Like, how, how did I, I am so normal. How are they so unusual, special, very special people? Uh, some of us have those internal, we would never say that out loud, you understand, but we have these internal 
internal thoughts and we think, what really brings us together? Is it, is it an affinity? No, you wouldn't choose these people if they had not been given to you by, by God. And that's his grace. He's given you the family that he's given you in his wisdom and in his grace. He's given them just to you. They're for you. And he intends goodness and wonderful things in all of that for his beloved. What, what, what connects you? A last name, a bloodline, a lineage. Now look at this room. This room. What, what, what brings us together in this room? We're called the family of God. It's one of the most used metaphors to describe the church of Jesus Christ as a family of the living God. What, what brings us together? Is it, is it the sports teams that we root for? Is it, is it the educational backgrounds and choices that we've made? Is it the socioeconomic status? Is it the political candidates that we vote for? No, it's because we share a name and a bloodline and a lineage. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's drawn us together. That's, that's the sharing. That's the that's the partnership and the nature of the partnership. Now, here, here's what the Apostle Paul sees as he looks at the church at Philippi. Last week, we were looking at Acts chapter 16 together. Because that's where Paul visited the church at Philippi and where the first conversions arose out of the church at Philippi through the preaching of the gospel. Who did we, who did we see in Acts chapter 16 that came to know the Lord? There were the foundations for the beginning of the church at Philippi. Lydia. A seller of purple, worked in the mercantile, a businesswoman, a slave girl, unnamed, demon-possessed, who Paul, through the power of the Spirit, exercised. A jailer who was just about to kill himself at the end of the earthquake, thinking he'd lost all of his prisoners. And if it weren't for the Apostle Paul stopping the movement of the sword through his voice, he would have done so. And he cries out for mercy. The Apostle Paul teaches him, preaches to him the gospel, and he's converted. So let's paint it. Lydia, seller of purple, demon-possessed slave girl, and jailer. I'm sure they had a lot in common. I'm sure they read the same books, watched the same movies ran in the same circles, lived in the same gated neighborhoods. The point of the passage when he refers to partnership in the language of fellowship is to say there is a commonness that has brought us together. We hold something in common, and the thing that we hold in common is Christ. That's what we hold in common. Now here's the challenge. The challenge is to be a church that holds Christ in common. That's really the challenge. In fact, I sometimes get asked, what's in a way you can evaluate the health of a local congregation? Well, there are many different ways that you can evaluate the health of a local congregation. But one of the ways you can evaluate the health of a local congregation is this, is this a people who gather because of their common commitment and interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Or is this a group of particularly special interest groups? Affinity likings. Of of comforts. Socially, culturally, and otherwise. That also happen to be Christians. Also happen to name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, But really... These are my people, you say. They're, they're, my, they're my cultural people. Is that how we view church? Or are we really sharing Christ as what's common? Or is it other things? And when the Apostle Paul looks at the church at Philippi, he says, the thing that's so obvious to me is that your partnership in serving in the gospel comes from the fact that nothing would bring you together unless it was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the common currency that links the church at Philippi. And thus he is the partnership through which you're willing to enter into suffering to see his gospel advance. Now let's get kind of meddlesome for a second. You okay with that? Who are you going to talk to this morning? And why are you going to talk to them? Just do a little catalog in your mind. Who are you going to talk to? And why are you going to talk to them? And some of you are thinking, I don't want to talk to anybody. I hope I get out of here if, you know, and I don't get to have to talk to anyone. That's okay. I'm speaking to you as well. This applies for you. Who are you going to talk to and why are you going to talk to them? And is Christ the commonality? Is Christ the common motivator for your engagements, for your conversations, for the things that you talk about, for the way that you listen, for how you speak back, for how you process? Do do you in the engagement think to myself, here is a fellow sinner in need of grace and together we're clinging to Christ? As I look at every one of you, that's true of us together today. As I listen to you, do I think, well, I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is this. Or do I think, let me listen for what it is that interests them. And where are the prayer requests? And where are the needs? How can I serve with my time and energy and resources and the things that they've shared? What are the ways in which Christ could be made known in this conversation and after this conversation so that we can follow up and link together in partnership in the week ahead? That's a different way of thinking. And it's closer to what the Apostle Paul is praying with thanksgiving about for the church at Philippi. This beautiful picture of partnership and fellowship that he he gives us here is a, is a commendation and a challenge. A commendation from the fact that in the previous hour, we got a beautiful display through the thanksgivings of many within this congregation, from sickness to spiritual challenges to life ups and downs, where people shared their hearts about what was going on and talked about how this local congregation and how the Lord has met them in the midst of that. Praise be to God. He is worthy of being commended for the work that he is doing in our midst. Now, for every one of those stories, there's one unmet. There's always more to be done than we ever get to. And it's a challenge inside the commendation that's asking the question of us today, 
How will we answer the call to a deeper partnership in the gospel in this local body in the year to come? How will we answer it? How will you answer it? How will I answer it? What is the Lord calling us to? That a prayer such as this could be prayed with greater truthfulness in the days to come. Well, not only is he thankful for the partnership in the gospel, he's thankful, as he tells us, and as we focused on at the beginning of our time together today, he's thankful for the future hope that he knows is true about every single one of those souls that have partnered with him in the gospel. He's not just thankful in the present for their partnership. He's casting his eye to the future and he goes, I can almost glimpse by faith what you're going to become in Christ Jesus. And I want you to know that God never stops short when he starts in on a project. And the work that he's begun in you, he's going to bring it to completion. The work that he has begun in you, he's going to bring it to completion. Now, that's one of the most assuring verses I think that we will find uh, in the New Testament. I hope you return to this verse often when you think, you look at your own life and you look at the world, and you maybe look at the church and you think to yourself, I don't know how we're going to get there from here. As you look over the course of things, and the fact of the matter is, it's a question not of how you're going to get there. The question is how he has promised to get you there. That's where the locus of focus is in the context of this passage. He is the actor. He will bring to completion the things which he has begun in you. He's going to carry you there. He is the one that's going to get you there. Now, this is what the theologians call the doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of eternal security. You might know it colloquially as the one saved Always saved doctrine. Well, that's true. It's exactly true. But it's important that we understand what is implied and included in the context of him bringing to completion that which he's begun in us. It doesn't mean, as is sometimes considered by Christians and in error, many have reflected both theologically and spiritually to say, well, then it's just up to God to get me there. Just let go and just... Let God, and he's going to make it happen. I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to kick back, and I'm going to just let him do his work, and he will bring to completion the things which he has begun. That's not the spirit of the Apostle Paul's language. How do we know that? Because he's already thanked them for what? Their partnership in the gospel. What do we say that included? Prayer, bearing witness, suffering, giving. That sounds like doing things. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel because he sees the evidence of God at work in them and so he wants to encourage them. He will bring to completion that which he's already begun in you. And Paul's going to unpack this more in Philippians chapter 2. This is not a series on the book of Philippians. We're looking just at these few verses with regards to Paul's prayer. But let me just, just note, and if you have your Bibles, you might flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14, because it's there, verses 12 through 13, because it's there where the Apostle Paul gives us that very well-known phrase, speaking about the work of sanctification, of growing in godliness. 
Becoming more like Christ. Being conformed into the image of Christ. This is language that Paul uses everywhere in his letters. And he tells us something about the process. And what he says is this. We are to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's a beautiful, beautiful statement on on really a summary of what biblical growth in grace looks like. It, it, It looks like being dependent on God to do all of the work, first and foremost. It's God who works in us. It's God who works in us. What does he work in us? His grace and all the fruits that attend to that grace, like righteousness and holiness and obedience. He works all those things into us. How do, what do we do as he works those things into us by grace? Well, we exercise those things. We work that salvation out. We flex that salvation muscle. And as we flex it, we grow. As we are partners in the gospel, we rest. As we rest, we're motivated to go. In the work of the gospel, there's a dynamic with God's power at play at the foundation of the Christian's life. And he might be, very possibly in terms of the context, if you think of the Philippian suffering, which he's just going to describe at the end of chapter 1, it's very possible the Apostle Paul here wants to encourage them. He wants them to know that this light and momentary affliction won't last forever. This weakness, these unfinished projects, this never growing as fast as you wish you were, take heart. God's at work in you, and he's going to bring it to completion. It is very likely the Apostle Paul is wanting to encourage them. As he does later with the church In Galatia, you remember what he says to the church at Galatia? Don't grow weary of doing good, for in due time you will reap a harvest. Don't grow weary. In your suffering, in your challenges, in your incomplete projects, in the renewals that you feel and experience in church on Sunday and completely fail at on Monday. Don't give up. That's what he's saying. For God has begun a good work in you, and he's going to bring it to completion. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it's God who's at work in you. Now, if you're having trouble experiencing and, and, and grasping this dynamic that's at play, I want you to see it's not just a New Testament salvific reality. It's something that God has always used in his church going back to the Old Testament. That he is the one who does the work. But he calls us into the work as he does it. In fact, he uses us as the instruments through which he accomplishes the work. I love the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books. The theme of remembering is from the cover, the beginning cover to the end of the cover of Deuteronomy because the people are constantly forgetful. And I think I, I think I resemble that comment. And so I go back to that book all of the time to remember God's promises. One of the things he says at the opening In Deuteronomy chapter 1, and it feels somewhat ironic and maybe even confusing, but he says to them, Israel, I want you to know as you prepare to go take the land of Canaan, here's what I want you to know. I have given you the land. Now go take it. I've given you the land. Now, Now go take it. And you might think, well, if you've given us the land, just, well, give it. 
to us. Um, if, you, if you've given us the land, why don't you just give it? And he, he says, that's not what God says. I've given you the land, now go, go take it. Well, what's he doing? He's calling them into faith and obedience. He's calling them into trust of him. Does he need their military expertise? Does he need to use them to give them the land? No. Do they need their trust built in him through obedience to his call? Yes. I've already given you the land. Go take it. Now, in a very real sense, we can almost say the very same things about the salvation that we embrace in the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is praying is, you already have the complete salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ has won for you. It's as good as yours. Now go take it. Run in it. Walk worthy of it. Pursue it. Get after it. Because the work that I've begun in you, I will bring it to completion. I will bring it to completion. It's a beautiful statement. You know, one of the most remarkable sections in the Old Testament, I love it, I was in it again recently, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's when Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, is hearing the news for the first time that the Ammonites and the Moabites, this huge horde of Military soldiers are headed towards Israel, and Jehoshaphat knows we don't, have a, we don't have a chance against these pagan armies and the size of these armies coming in. They're going to utterly destroy us, and Jehoshaphat doesn't know what to do. And so he does what every person should do in a moment like that. He prays. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord tells him in no uncertain terms, hey, listen, the battle is not yours. The battle is mine. The battle is mine. I've already won it. I've, I've already won it for you. Now go fight them. And as he prays, an ambush of the Lord, that's literally the language in the Hebrew, an ambush of the Lord routes all of the armies of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And, and no bloodshed. Happens for the people of Israel. It's a complete rout by God. He's the one who is going to win the victory for his people. Now here's what I love about Jehoshaphat. And here's what I think the Lord is calling us to do. What Jehoshaphat did, which is still boggles my mind when I read it, is before they go into battle, they, he receives the word from the Lord through Jehaziel, one of the Zechariah's sons. He receives the word of the Lord. And you know what he does? He doesn't say, hey, let's get ready. Let's get our armaments. God's going to give us victory. They shout with joy and begin worshiping. And you know what he does? He appoints singers, worshipers, to begin singing the song of God's victory before they even go into battle. Give thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. And he is the protector of God's people. And the singers are worshiping their victory before they ever go into battle. Now if you can see it, the Apostle Paul is doing the same thing here in Philippians 1. 
He is saying, people at Philippi, you're praying and you're interceding. It's beautiful. You're in military warfare, spiritual warfare. You're bearing witness for the gospel. You're pushing back the kingdom of darkness through the sharing of the gospel. The Lord is using you and releasing you into ministry. You're receiving the barbs of the evil one. You're in the midst of suffering. You're giving of your own resources in order to meet the needs of the ministry. You're waging war on the front. I want you to know the battle is already the Lord's because when I look at you, I want you to know he will bring to completion the thing which he has begun in you. Are you sure, Paul? I mean, when I look at, I mean, we're like, we're like five people against millions. The battle is the Lord's. He will bring to completion the thing which he has begun in you. The, the beauty of what Paul is doing here in this Thanksgiving prayer is confirming to the people of, of, of Philippi as the people of Israel had long ago been confirmed, and as we today are learning yet again afresh, that there is nothing that can stay the hand of the Lord when his purposes have set towards a particular end. And he has set an end towards you being glorified in his presence, in the new heavens and the new earth. And friends, the gates of hell won't prevail against that. There's no way they can. It's as good as done. One of the things I love about that short story, Leaf by Niggle, is the fact that when Niggle goes into the far country, he ultimately passes away. He ends in that far country. And you know what he finds there? His painting. In fact, he's inside it. And as he's walking around inside the painting, it is fully complete. All of the leaves are just exquisite. Everything that he had envisioned had been completed. And it reminds us of the fact that there's going to be a lot of loose ends here. And there'll be business yet to do if the Lord tarries when we are laid in the grave. But there will come a day when everything as God envisioned it, the painting that he's painting of which you're in, will be exactly as it ought to be. And you will see it. And you will say, I saw something of this. Years ago in Middle Tennessee at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. But I never really got around to doing half the things I, I had hoped to do. And it never got as far as we, as we wished it would. But praise be to God, He has brought to completion the work that He has begun. Friends, we know that that is the case because when the Lord Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, he didn't, in the moment of receiving the punishment for our sin and the wrath of God for it, he didn't say, it's almost done, it's close, but I'm going to need help. He said, it is finished. And it is, friends. The rest of this life and the ministry we do is discovering how finished it is.
And the day when we gather with him, crossing that finish line and staring at our Savior in the face will be the day we will know just how finished it always was in Christ. For in that day, it will truly be done. It will truly be done. That which he has begun in you, take heart. He will bring it to completion. Praise be to God. Father in heaven, hasten the day when faith would turn to sight and prayer would turn to praise. Hasten the day where the finished work of Jesus Christ wouldn't be just always glimpsed, glimpsed it seemed, by faith, but would begin to be seen with the eyes. And hope would turn to glad fruition. And we would know in that moment, even as we are known, Lord, there are a lot of incomplete canvases in all of our lives. And there'll be strokes still yet to paint when we breathe our last tear. Until then, we want to be partners in the gospel. And when we close our eyes, we want to close them with the hope that what we didn't get to here you've gotten to in eternity. And so, Lord, let us rest in the finished work of Jesus today, knowing that the day of completion is closer than it's ever been before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.